Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 32, All the Nations of the Earth, the Carthaginian Army under Hannibal. Last time, we discussed the Polybian Roman Legion with its Virtus and Discipline. Today, we will cover the Carthaginian army which opposed this formidable fighting machine in the Second Punic War. As mentioned in prior episodes, by the time of the Punic Wars, Carthage had long since ceased sending large numbers of her own Punic citizens overseas for military service. The last time a sizable Carthaginian contingent had left North African shores in 339 BC, 10,000 citizens had perished in the disastrous Battle of the Cremissus against Timoleon, including the 2,500-strong Sacred Band, which was composed of the finest and wealthiest of the Carthaginian nobility, all of which we covered way back in Episode 8. Ever since this debacle, Carthage remained reluctant to send her own sons to war, preferring instead to pay others to do her fighting for her. As a mercantile civilization, this sat comfortably with her notion that war was just business conducted by other means, and in war, as in business, professionals were needed. Thus Carthaginian recruiters scoured the four corners of the earth for the best, bravest, and baddest mercenaries they could find to fill her ranks. Although the process of recruitment and organization remains something of a mystery, the Carthaginians likely employed a variety of methods for recruiting armies. Besides enlisting individuals or small bands directly, Carthaginian recruiters also negotiated with neighboring chieftains and princes who supplied the necessary warrior quotas in exchange for large cash payments. The same chieftains or their subordinates would then lead their followers in the campaigns which followed, providing the benefit of maintaining and maximizing the social cohesion of such units. However, the Carthaginians were too well versed in the ways of the world to allow these powerful foreign leaders a free, unsupervised reign over their warlike followers. Each band would have a designated Carthaginian officer who served as a liaison between the ethnic division and the overall commander. Well-versed in the language, manners, and customs of the tribe serving under him, this officer would act as Carthage's representative and would also command the warriors in conjunction with their own native leaders. Although we have no way to be sure, the command and control structure was likely similar to Britain's modern Gurkha regiments, where a professional British staff officer serves as the recruiter, interpreter, advisor, and colonel of a native fighting force. While this description allows the various Gauls, Greeks, Iberians, and Italians who served in Carthage's armies to fit more or less comfortably under the title of mercenaries, Carthage's North African soldiers do not match the same rubric so easily. The native Libyans, for instance, who inhabited a vast swath of Carthaginian territory and who served as the backbone of Carthaginian armies, appear at different times to be a mixture of allies, dependents, and subjects. This is also true to a lesser extent of the Numidian kingdoms as well, although these are more often seen as allies similar to how the Numidian prince Nerevus fought for Hamilcar Barca during the Truceless War. 
Although we cannot be certain how exactly Carthage's North African contingents were recruited or organized, it does seem that their equipment was supplied by the state and that they received payment for their services. As mentioned before, the hardy Libyan tribesmen formed the mainstay of any polyglot Carthaginian army. These men typically wore red tunics and fought either as light infantrymen with javelins or as heavy line infantry in a phalanx formation as Middle Eastern-style hoplites. Later on in the 3rd century BC, they seem to have followed the trend towards a progressive lightening of equipment, moving from the heavy hoplon of the hoplite to the oval thorough shield inherited from the Gauls, along with the spear, sword, and javelins, suited for more versatile tasks than just phalanx combat. As Hannibal's army in particular transitioned into a more mobile warfare when confronting the Romans, it seems that the Libyans shed the last vestiges of the phalanx and instead assumed the gear of the defeated legionaries, stripping the Roman dead of their mail shirts, shields, and swords. Indeed, as we shall see in the coming episodes, it is not too much a stretch to say that by the end of the Second Punic War, a Libyan heavy infantryman would have looked fairly similar to his Roman counterpart in arms and equipment. If the Libyans formed the mainstay of the heavy infantry in Carthage's armies, the Numidian horse gave her her greatest striking arm. As covered in episode 14 on North Africa, the Numidians were a semi-nomadic people who inhabited the rugged terrain south and east of Carthage proper. Their lightly armed horsemen belied their deadliness in combat. With only a rope or stick to guide their sturdy ponies, they would dart about the battlefield riding bareback, hurling a rain of javelins at more cumbersome foes who could never hope to catch their evasive tormentors. Livy credited the Numidians with being by far the best horsemen in Africa, unmatched in their chosen method of warfare. Under Hannibal, the Numidians would be employed to devastating effect, eviscerating their more heavily armored Roman counterparts in battle after battle. Next to the native contingents of North Africans, Iberians or Spaniards typically form the next largest group of soldiers in Carthaginian armies. I touched on the Spaniards before, once again in episode 14, but to recap quickly, these troops were drawn from the various warlike tribes dwelling on the fractured Iberian Peninsula, inured to conflict and hardship by near-constant raiding and low-level warfare. The Bastatanians, Contestanians, Oritanians, Editanians, Lusitanians, and Celtiberians who fought for Carthage proved fierce and reliable soldiers. They also served in nearly every arm of the Carthaginian army. The lightly armed Chiatrati fought with solid metal javelins, soliferum, curved heavy-tipped swords, falcatas, and a small circular buckler, Chiatra and filled a variety of useful roles due to their skilled swordsmanship and guerrilla tactics perfected by centuries of constant warfare. The more heavily armed Scutarii fought as line infantry, wearing leather or rawhide helmets and armor, and carrying large oval shields, termed scutum by the Romans, which is where their name derives, as well as spears, swords, and the dreaded all-metal soliferum, which they hurled into the enemy ranks 
right before they charged home. In close combat, their finely built swords, most were custom built to suit the wielder's arm length, weight, and build, allowed them to effectively engage even the more heavily armed legionaries. Indeed, the Romans grew to be so impressed with the Iberian equipment that they adopted portions of it wholesale. The Gladius Hispaniensis, as the name implies, was likely derived from the short, straight Spanish sword often used instead of the falcata, while the pilum and scutum could also have been influenced by the soliferum and Spanish scutum as well. A popular theory is that the Romans adopted these arms after facing large formations of Spaniards in the First Punic War, which makes sense, but of course we can never be certain. What we do know is that Hannibal valued his Spaniards almost as much as he did his stubborn North African soldiers, and together they formed a veteran corps which he used sparingly, sending them in only when he needed their expertise to turn the tide of battle. Spanish cavalry fought alongside their infantry brethren, and under Hannibal gained renown for their fierce and cunning horsemanship. Unlike the Numidians, who preferred to avoid hand-to-hand -hand encounters if possible, the Spaniards, Gauls, and Italians, who formed the majority of Carthage's cavalrymen, rarely hesitated to engage at close quarters once battle was joined. Although we may often think of cavalry in terms of heroic and brutal charges a la medieval knight style, the lack of a stirrup likely handicapped the ancient cavalryman's ability to maintain his seat under such circumstances. Despite the ancients' attempts to turn their genius to solve this problem, the Roman four-cornered saddle being a notable example of such efforts to increase a rider's stability, it is at least probable that such charges were rarer than popular opinion would have us believe. Instead, it is likely that ancient cavalry far more often performed a sort of wheeling maneuver, as Polybius calls it, riding backwards and forwards across the line and flinging javelins at their opponents, or, when closing with the enemy, dismounting to fight one-on-one -on -one as infantry. Polybius's accounts of various cavalry engagements during the Second Punic War lends credibility to this theory, although obviously cavalrymen still could have fought mounted if they wished to maintain the benefits of fighting from the saddle. Spears, javelins, and swords typically formed the offensive arms of the Spanish, Gallic, or Italian cavalry who served in the Carthaginian armies, and these arms were often of a very high quality given that most cavalrymen would be men of at least well-to-do means, if not wealthy noblemen. They would also likely have worn some form of defensive gear, which varied according to their nationality. Bronze circular pectoral plates for the Spaniards, chainmail and metal helmets for the Gauls, and bronze breast and back plates, or chainmail, for the Italians. It is also notable that the Carthaginians, or at least the Libby Phoenicians, seem to have also formed a cavalry unit in some Carthaginian armies, forming the only significant concentration of Carthaginian citizens in the field apart from the officer corps. Similar to the Spaniards, the term Italian was applied as more of a loose moniker rather than an actual definition of a distinct people group. Within the label, we find Brutians, Campanians, Lucanians, and Samnites who all at one time or another served under Carthage's banners. As we remember from episode 17, 
Rome's recent conquests against these peoples had still occurred nearly within living memory by the time of the Punic Wars, and her vanquished one-time enemies often welcomed the chance to strike a blow in the service of Carthage against their old antagonists. Hannibal himself found his greatest support in Italy, apart from the Gauls in the Po Valley, among the recently subjugated Italians of southern Italy, and they continued the long and bitter fight against the Romans long after Carthage had ceased to exist. The Italians typically fought in a manner similar to the Romans, with various shields, swords, and javelins, preferring to close rapidly with the enemy after throwing their javelins and slugging it out with spear, sword, and knife face to face. Another interesting fact about the Italians was that their national dress consisted of a tunic that was often so short it exposed the wearer's buttocks to the enemy. Other than the Italians, the Gauls were the other dwellers from Italy who served in Carthaginian armies and formed the bulk of Hannibal's army in Italy. As we discussed in episode 15, the Gauls, comprising an ethnic group which stretched at one time from central Spain to the Danube, dwelt primarily over the Alps in what is now France, but had invaded the rich Po Valley centuries before and thus joined the multitude of other peoples jockeying for position along the Italian peninsula. Reckless, headstrong, and undisciplined, the Gauls would charge headlong into battle wearing whatever each individual man fancied. Some fought bare-chested, others wore chainmail or linen armor, while some even fought stark naked to demonstrate their fearlessness and ferocity. Unlike the Romans and Spaniards, the Gauls fought with long swords rounded at the end to allow for the wielder to deliver a heavy, slashing blow onto his enemy during his frenzied charge. Given their reckless attitude toward warfare, where each man charged forward to prove himself in single combat with a worthy foe, we find, unsurprisingly, that the Gauls suffered heavy casualties in most battles where they were present. Indeed, in Hannibal's army in Italy, the Gauls served as the readiest cannon fodder, wearing the Roman lines down with initial assaults until Hannibal dispatched his prized Spaniard and African reserve to finish the enemy off. Nonetheless, despite their undisciplined nature and erratic fighting style, a Gallic charge was no joke, as Polybius attests to, especially since the Gauls were often taller and stronger than their southern neighbors, the prototypical barbarian and their large numbers gave Hannibal a ready source of manpower, desperately needed so far from Carthage. Various other ethnic groups and units served in Carthage's and specifically Hannibal's army at one time or another, including the proud, mountain-dwelling Ligurians of northwestern Italy and the Balearic Slingers, which I covered in episode 10. Greek mercenaries also served in Carthaginian armies, although their numbers seem to have been comparatively small, possibly due to Carthage's innate distrust of Hellenistic adventurers. I have also not covered our favorite battlefield beast, the elephants, in this episode, mostly because we have already done an in-depth dive in episode 21 regarding the breeds used and their method of fighting. Don't worry though, there will be more elephant action in the future. This overview gives us at least the major contingents who fought under the Carthaginian banner 
during the Punic Wars. As we can see, unlike Rome's relatively homogenized organization and command structure, one Carthaginian army might vary significantly from another due to the composition of the units, i.e. where the troops were drawn from, and their commanders. Although historically Carthaginian armies, other than Hannibal's, have generally been given short shrift when compared with their more standardized Roman counterparts, Carthage's mercenaries could prove themselves to be tough and effective combatants when well-equipped and well-led. Doubtless the semi-professionalism of mercenary life gave these troops some combat experience and training over the average soldier-farmer of the Romans, which might also have helped to explain why the Romans suffered such heavy casualties in several of their engagements with the Carthaginians. Often the quality of the army itself would depend heavily on the individual merits of the commander and his lieutenants. Although the various nationalities, languages, and fighting styles comprising their armies could prove cumbersome and even paralyzing to poor Carthaginian generals, under an energetic and charismatic leader such as Hannibal, Carthage's troops could, and did, regularly prove that they were not only the equals, but the betters of their Roman opponents. Hannibal's genius in particular lay in his ability to weld his multitudinous army into a cohesive fighting entity bound to their commander by force of personality. While uniting the army under his iron will, Hannibal also wisely allowed the various ethnic contingents to maintain their own arms and fighting styles, allowing him to field a force of unprecedented flexibility which could enact any plan which his tactical genius devised. Should you wish any further details regarding the various peoples and soldiers covered here, feel free to check out episodes 13 through 17, which are a more in-depth dive of the groups, cultures, and fighting styles associated with them. I have also linked a few sources I used in the description, should anyone wish for further study. For now, this brief overview is merely intended to set the stage for what is to come. Rome's military machine fueled by Virtus and tempered by Discaplina, against Hannibal's heterogeneous, versatile army fused together by sheer force of personality. Next time, we return to the narrative which commences with the storm clouds gathering for the Second Punic War. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>